So after 10 weeks where we're taking a break and not just, yeah, three months and all of that. So this morning I'm speaking on something different. So it's not the, the Daniel series. So we will resume our series in Daniel, God willing, when I return. But I do strongly encourage you to look a little bit deeper uh, in the Bible study that uh, is starting tonight at, uh, at West Hoxton and Samuel will be the leader. A new kingdom from John chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. As you can imagine, during this time, 2,000 years ago, there was a lot of momentum that already had been building up to this point as Jesus enters Jerusalem, which uh, was going to kick off that eventful final week in which he was going to, by the end of it, he was going to give his life and then rise again from the dead. So as we all know, uh, things will get a lot worse for Jesus before they got better on that glorious Sunday morning. As Jesus made uh, specific preparations for that final week, there is fervour, there is excitement that has been building up for a number of years. John tells us, the next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, so they took palm branches and went out to meet him and they were shouting. For three years, Jesus had been ministering all around the countryside, performing miracles, teaching. For three years, he had healed the sick, the lame, the blind, the lepers. For three years, he had attracted one crowd after another, teaching them about the the coming kingdom of God, but also telling them the kingdom of God is here. It culminated in in being able, that one of the the highlights was being able to raise Lazarus from the dead in front of all of those witnesses. So we read in in verses 17 to to 18, now the crowd that was with him when he, he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. And many people, because they had heard he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. They were primed. The word had got around. A bit like wildfire, they just spread and the expectations was building. So by the time Jesus gets to Jerusalem, the crowd is wild. Unlike any other occasion that when he came to Jerusalem, he in the other times he was sort of just coming here and coming there. He was able to sneak in and, and not not draw a lot of attention. He didn't want to draw a lot of attention in his previous three, three and a half years of ministry. But now he was no longer seeking to conceal his authority, his identity, who he was. He had now come to deliberately declare that he was indeed the King of Israel, the Anointed One, the promised Messiah, the Son of Man, the one who had been announced centuries prior by the prophets of God. 
The fulfilment of the prophecies was here, it was now. So the first part of that expectation is that it is fulfilled. Fulfilled. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Back in Genesis, the the dying patriarch Jacob, he prophesied in Genesis chapter 49, verses 9 to 11, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be binding his foal unto the vine, and his ass is called unto the choice vine. So he was Shiloh. He was to come. All the way back in Genesis, he was already announced. And the prophet Zechariah prophesied about this very event some 500 years before. The crowd cried out, Hosanna, which means save us now. And after Jesus blessed the the loaves and, and the fishes and he fed the thousands, the crowd was so impressed that they wanted to make him king there and then. We read this in John chapter 6, verse 15. It says that Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, not like Jesus was putting his hand up to be king, a political... He, he withdrew again to a mountain by himself. The thing is that the the, the king that that they were expecting, the king that they wanted, wasn't the type of king that Jesus had in mind. That wasn't his purpose. They wanted an earthly king who would sit on David's throne and lead a rebellion against the occupying forces of the Roman armies and improve everybody's lot in life. And by all appearances, Jesus was everything you could hope for in a leader. He was charismatic, he was decisive, he was powerful, healing the wounded, raising the dead even. What army on earth could stand against such a king? A soldier gets killed in battle or you just raise him up again? How good is that? Their minds went back all the way to the days of David and Solomon when Israel was glorious, when the borders and everybody paid homage to Israel. They wanted to go back there. But Jesus didn't come to fulfil their patriotic ideals. He didn't accept their nomination. At his trial before Pilate, Jesus would declare... My kingdom is not of this world. That should be the end of the matter, right? But us humans, we're a complicated lot. Mormons and many so-called evangelicals teach that we're here to establish the kingdom of God on earth. Imagine that. It's our job. This is the premise behind the social justice movement that is popular today. 
as much as we might try the, the idea that somehow through our efforts Jesus would come and reign in our midst is simply hubris and wrong. But the church is an integral part of the kingdom of God here on earth. It is a community of the redeemed, those who have been forgiven from their sins through Christ. In Colossians 1.13 we read, For the Father, for He, the Father, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. If you're a believer in Christ, you're here this morning or you're listening, you're watching online, if you're a true believer in Christ, you are part of the kingdom of God where Jesus is your king and he is my king. This is what we declare. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So what are some other characteristics of this kingdom? It is boundless. Blessed is he Blessed is the king of Israel, verse 13. Boundless means it has no boundaries. It has no limits. The people who were cheering for Jesus were the pilgrims who had come for that eventful week, the Passover, for the Passover feast. They were coming from all over the countryside for the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The locals who lived in Jerusalem, had little idea of what the, all the fuss was about because Jesus mostly used to hang around the countryside. That's where his major influence was. And they were asking, the people in Jerusalem were, well, what's, what's going on? Nobody told us about this. And the passage that follows tells us that even some Greeks came asking for Jesus and, and this is a prophetic part of the ministry of the gospel that we, how will expand and explode in the book of Acts. That as the church was persecuted from Jerusalem, it started to spread to even to Rome, even to corners of the earth, even to Australia. Because as Jesus died, the seed, the holy seed, then would be will bring forth so much more fruit around the world. But you see, again, humans are a funny lot. We need fences to help us define what's mine, what's yours. We have titles to everything. This car is mine, see? Ownership certificate, bank account, it's mine. The property I live on is not mine. It belongs to the church, but you know what I mean. We like fences. We like ownership of stuff. And even in the household, you know what happens with all the siblings? No, that's my shirt. How can you wear my shirt? That's mine. That's my cup. No, that's Dad's cup. It's my room, okay? Stay out. It goes on. It goes on and on. And then it expands because then the boundaries, the title, the, 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 
all this stuff is whether you're in or you are out. And this is the way that the, the Israelites, the Jews, this is the way that they pretty much define God's kingdom. They want to define boundaries. And more than that, more seriously, it had racial boundaries. There were the Jews and then there were the Gentiles. And there was the division between men and women. Men could do this, women can't do this, this is where they pray, this is where they can't. So if Jesus were to create a physical kingdom with earthly, earthly boundaries, it would have certainly limited the capacity of his kingdom. If Jesus simply followed the format that was what people expected, right? But the new Israel doesn't have such boundaries, doesn't have those limitations. It was the people of God under a new covenant where there was no limitation of language or tribe or colour of a skin or education level, whether you're rich or poor or political persuasion, whatever it was, there was neither male nor female. We're all one in Christ. And that's so hard to understand. But we still want to go back to the fences. Yeah, 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 I understand. I read all those verses in the Bible, but I still think that this is mine. And, and, and no, you can't have it. You need to ask permission. During, you know that during the Middle Ages there was a, a physical kingdom that lasted a thousand years and was known as the Holy Roman Empire. Arguably, it began with Charles the Great, around about Germany, France, around that area there. Around about the, he took the throne 800 AD, 800 years after Christ, he took the throne and, and it lasted for, for a thousand years until the, the French Revolution, right? They, they uh, broke into the Bastille. And, and Napoleon brought this kingdom, this thousand-year kingdom, to its knees in 1806. And he covered this kingdom. It was a political kingdom. It wasn't just religious, it was political. He covered much of Europe with Austria, Germany, Switzerland, Czechoslovakia, Belgium, most of France, Poland, Italy. It was meant to be a physical kingdom for Christendom as he, as he tried to put a fence around the church to protect it against the, the hordes of the Islam and, and others to protect it, put boundaries. Let me ask you, is that what the church should look like? Is that the type of influence we want to exercise in our political system, in our country? Is this what Jesus had in mind? No, the church is to be a new society that is different, different to the ways of the world. We can, we can see that the family dynamics, the business practices, the race relations, that all of life can be under the, the, the kingship of Jesus. 
It doesn't submit to some central organised control in Rome or wherever. It's the kingship of Jesus. The church is not only to model the healing of God, his rule, but it is to spread. It's go beyond. It is ordering lives and relationships according to God's authority. To, to, to go deep where people are convicted. There's a change that happens from the inside and it starts to show outside. Because we are a new creation. And there's ample evidence, there's ample historical evidence that nations who have based their laws, their constitutions on God's word and continue to do so have fared much better than those who have moved away from God. That's exactly what is happening today. We're moving away from that. So again, let me just say it, the church doesn't need a fence fence around it. There is no need for walls to protect it. Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He didn't say, on this rock I will build my walls and we're just going to build really strong walls so nobody can attack us. No, in fact, the church is actually, it's a force. It's actually, they're the ones who are storming the gates of hell. So the church doesn't need protection as such because it is a force on the move. Jesus also declared, the kingdom of God is within you. This means that as God's child, wherever you go, God's kingdom goes with you. From the innocent to the frail, there is no overt display of power. It is simple. It is, well, it is who we are. And no worldly kingdom has, has, has the power to stand against that. As Christians were being tortured and, and mauled by lions and, and spent years incarcerated for injustices because of who they were, because they would not bear down to Caesar, they could not break them because the kingdom of God was within them. And as they killed more Christians, the church grew more and more and more. They could not stop it. Because why? Because the church is built on the foundation and the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Because the tomb could not hold him. Governments couldn't. Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church. And he meant it. And so as we are being built in Christ, we are being 
we are this force, this vibrant force with the power to overwhelm the gates of hell. An army so powerful that it is able to take on Satan and hell itself. Just, just think about that. And we know the end result. We know the end of the story. We know how this is going to end. It's not like this, this big secret. We don't know how this is going to end. What we do know. The one who, when they came to arrest him, and, and, and Peter lifted a sword and cut off the ear and blah, blah, blah. We, we know that that's going to happen this, in, in that final week. He said, don't you know, don't you know that the Father has put at my disposal 12 legions of angels that I can call? And all these angels in heaven just, just waiting for the call, just waiting for the call for them to break one angel, the Bible tells us, had enough power to kill 180,000 men. One angel. Just think about the firepower of 12 legions of angels. This whole universe, the galaxies, where everything it is, 12 legions could destroy it. Zip. To nothing. Jesus had all that tremendous firepower at his disposal. And yet he was handcuffed and then all of that he was saying, what makes you think that you're so special if the Son of God submitted such a way? Because there is no kingdom in the universe that can stand against the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is not limited to physical boundaries. His worship and the proclamation of his gospel is not restricted to these walls even if they take everything here away from us, even if the authorities come and close us down, his kingdom will not stop. It will not fail. Even if we have to meet in jail or behind closed doors, under a tree, wherever it is, guess what is happening right now in many parts of the world? It's exactly what is happening. And the kingdom of God is spreading. It is also peaceful. Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Uh, as, as we have been looking in our series in, in Daniel, worldly physical kingdoms, they have their time because God in his sovereignty allows them to reign for a time. They come, they rise, they fall, another one takes their place and so on and so forth. That's the way it's going because God in his sovereignty allows them and even though they don't know, they're actually carrying out God's objectives. And as these kingdoms, whoever they may be, they conquer new territory, then they have to spend a lot of power and a lot of money to con- defend and control the boundaries, that they've, the territory that they've just conquered. There's a lot of maintenance that goes on. And it's through, through fear and terror that they... You know, anybody that rebels, you're gonna, you just cut off their necks, right? Because you need to put up, put down any uprising. Now, four generations before Jesus lived, there was a there was a good man. He wasn't a bad man. He was a good man named Judah Maccabee. He was upset that the Syrians 
trashed the city of Jerusalem. So he rallied an army of Jewish men and fought the Syrians. And in 163 BC, he entered Jerusalem riding on a big stallion. The people waved palm branches and cheered, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Judah was their hero. And many thought at the time that he was in fact the Jewish Messiah. And when they entered the city, they cleaned out the temple, burned incense, offered sacrifices and lit a huge menorah that burned for eight days. To this day, the Jews celebrate the eight days of the Festival of Lights, also known as Hanukkah, to celebrate this accomplishment. Unfortunately, soon after this fanfare, Judah was killed in a battle. There goes their Messiah. So when, so when Jesus entered the city, the people could see the similarity. They knew their history between Judah Maccabee and his grand entrance 200 years before. But this is different. Instead of riding on this big stallion, Jesus rides on a donkey. Jesus, couldn't you find something a little bit more, you know, for the occasion? Just go to Kennards and hire a proper horse or something, right? Like, I don't know. A horse is more impressive. It's like an armoured military vehicle, right? A donkey is more like your humble tractor. You know? And Jesus chose a donkey because his kingdom was not about force, about coercion. It was peace and hard work, humility. Yes, there are times when we're tempted to treat his kingdom the way the world does, especially when we look around and we struggle with unrighteous leadership and corruption in our nation. And let me say it again. The kingdom of God is not about force and coercion and fear and terror. That even if we Christians were able to have their ways in, in the laws and everything in our land, it will not be heaven. A thousand years and it failed. What do you think we're going to be any different? It's about the proclamation of the greatest news that man will ever hear, the news of the gospel. And as people respond to the good news of the gospel, miracles happen in their lives. The greatest miracles is a life surrendered to Jesus Christ. One life at a time. Can't we do this quicker? No, one life at a time. And they start to influence their world, their world, the workplace, the, the community. Their families. But this kingdom is also mysterious. Verse 16. At first his disciples did not understand this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. So there's a couple of things that his disciples 
and Jesus' followers, including us, since then, really struggle to understand. Firstly, the nature of sacrifice. That, that although it had all the appearances of a, this triumphal entry, triumphalism was not in Jesus' thoughts. Yes, he was coming as king, but not to receive a throne. He was coming in tears to pronounce judgment upon the nation. And we read this in Luke's Gospel. Uh, we read that in Luke 19, verse 41, and when he drew near the city and saw the city, he wept over it. Well, that's a bit of a counter <laughs> anticlimactic, right? Come on, be happy. When he came over the brow of the mountain, and it's a, Jerusalem is on a hill, so he comes down from one and goes into the others. It, the city spread there, he, he teared up. Rather than rejoicing in the acclamation of the multitude and soaking it all in, he was actually weeping for what would happen to that place in a few years. He knew it, he could see it. He was God. Weeping for the individuals and weeping for the nation who would reject him. Oh, how many times I wish to gather you as a hen gathers the chicks, but you would not. You, you just refused. At one moment, when the crowds were cheering to having made king, they were happy that we're rejoicing, they, they came to see their hero. They, they saw themselves in him as, as coming to liberate them, there to improve their lot in life. That was at the beginning of the week, on Sunday. And just a few days later, they were demanding that he be crucified. crowds right have they shift I thought you liked me well, a few years after the, uh, this, the end of the second world war Winston Churchill was, uh, was visiting, visiting the US in 1952 about seven years after the end of the second world war right He was, in the US, he was received as a hero with the highest honours because of what had happened, right? And, and a woman asked him, doesn't it thrill you to know that every time you make a speech, the hall is packed to overflowing? And Churchill, in his own way, he responds, it is quite flattering, but whenever I feel this way, I always remember that if instead of making a political speech, I was being hanged, the crowd would be twice as big. He should know. He knew this. He knew this. All the celebrations at the end in, in England, all around the world at the end of the Second World War, you know, you saw the streets, right? And the homecomings and all of that. Just party, party, party. Because soon after leading Britain and the Allies to an incredible victory in 1945, he was ousted in an election that 
same year. How fickle the crowd. And I recognise myself in that fickle crowd, oddly enough. I struggle to follow the Australian cricket team when they're not winning. It's not just that, but my interest in cricket diminishes according to the, how our cricket team fares. Right? That's how fickle I am. And many follow Jesus in the same way. When we hear of revivals and you know, people like to talk about revivals, what's happening here and this place and that place, people coming to Jesus and miracles are happening, incredible things everywhere. We want to be part of that and, and enthusiasm in the crowd. Yes, yes. But we slip away when things aren't going our way. When we hear of people being persecuted and jailed. And yet the call is there to persevere through difficulty. Yes, it is exciting to follow Jesus when we're on the podium in the winner's circle or the accolades and the applause. But when Jesus begins to talk about suffering and sacrifice and perseverance and death, we hesitate. Let me ask you, and I've asked this question before, are we fair-weather followers of Jesus? Do you continue to trust him when things get difficult and when the crowds are no longer cheering for him or for you because you follow him? When the world has gone quiet and the opinion polls change, will you still follow? If your pastor and our church are suddenly accused of hate speech for calling people to repentance and faith in Jesus... Will you still tell your friends on social media that this is your home church or will you suddenly go quiet? Hmm. I'm not getting any more likes. I wonder. What's wrong? Maybe you should change the message so I get more friends. That'll do it. So the nature of sacrifice. The other thing that disciples struggle with is the nature of servanthood. If if Jesus' disciples struggle to understand the idea of God's kingdom as described by Jesus, I don't think we're any better. In 2,000 years, his followers or so-called followers failed to understand and accept that this kingdom, what this kingdom is really all about. We recall... Jesus' disciples, the the sons of thunder, James and John, coming to Jesus asking for a very special favour and they even got their mum involved in it. Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. Wow. Nothing more, nothing less. These boys had ambition. They... They wanted influence, they wanted power, they wanted popularity, authority and they wanted to get in before everybody else because it was going to be a very, uh, a position that everybody wanted. Very competitive, that one. Right hand, left hand of God, right, in his throne. And Jesus had to remind them, 
kingdom of God is, isn't about authority and position. It's about ministry and servanthood. This kingdom is very different to all the others. This is what he said in Luke chapter 22, verses 25 to 27. The kings of the Gentiles, you know what they're like. They lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. Oh, I give you this. Bravo. And he said, but you are not like that. Instead, if you think you're the greatest, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules over you, the one who serves. Look at me. I'm among you as one who serves. That's a really hard lesson to learn. You see, Jesus came to give glory to the Father and he did it by being obedient. He came to seek to save the lost and, and that is the mindset that he wants to build in all of us who are part of his kingdom, his followers. He created the church not to be trained mercenaries who are armed to the teeth, but he actually called us sheep and sent us into enemy territory like lambs to the slaughter. Oh, thank you. Hardly seems fair, don't it? There is no place in the church for people who want control and authority. If that's what you want in the church, the church is not for you. Go, I don't know, go and play politics or join the army or something. The church is designed to be a place where everyone serves each other and ultimately through that we are serving him. That's the teamwork, that's the servanthood. That's the type of service that honours God in everything. Church is not about me. It's not even about you. It's about Jesus Christ and the glory due to his name and the mission he has given his church. It's about knowing that his power, that in his power, not even the gates of hell will prevail. May God bless us. Amen.